Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Little Oracles podcast, an oracle for the everyday creative. I'm Allison Arth. So it's National Poetry Month here in the U.S., a very special and sacred time of year for me, because in case you didn't know, I'm a massive poetry fan, stan, what have you. I think I've always dabbled in poetry myself. Like, I definitely wrote poems as a kid. In fact, (laughs) my sixth grade teacher found some of my very old poems in her very old files, and she scanned them and sent them to my parents a few years ago. And let me tell you, they were kind of intense. (laughs) One of them opened with an image of a purring cat and ended with this meditation on decrepitude and the transience of human life. So yeah, I guess I was going through it when I was um, 12. (laughs) But anyhow, I, I wrote poetry growing up. And I guess at the risk of sharing too many anecdotes about my own precociousness here, I definitely remember writing a lot of poetry when I was like 15. And I would set each poem in a font that I thought reflected the tone or the content of the poem. And I remember printing out a stack of them, like maybe 20. And giving them to my honors English teacher, like as a gesture of, I trust you with my work and my soul or or whatever. And honestly, bless his heart. He took them and he never said a word to me about them. (laughs) So good, good on him. So I guess I've more than dabbled. (laughs) I've always been interested in the mix of the economy of language with imagism and lyric and, you know, tonal color that kind of plays counterpoint to that economy. Like, even within the language and the scale, we can imbue and infuse and discover breadth and depth and this abundance of meaning. And, you know, if you follow me on social media, personally, you probably know that I write these little micro poems every so often. And I write poetry role playing games. And I generally get into poetics and poetry podcasts and poets. And I thought today, we could unwrap what is very clearly an obsession for me, it being National Poetry Month and all, and I could share some of my favorites with all of you. So this is going to be a two-part series, and I'm going to talk about poets and the poetry podcasts and publications that I love and poetry games and socials and just generally how you can maybe integrate poetry into your life a little bit more. So if you're new to poetry, if you're old to poetry and you just love hearing about it, if you're just looking for new poetic experiences, then get cozy, grab a coffee or a whiskey or a wine cooler or whatever, and let me take you on a little tour of Posey from my perspective. So in part one, let's start at the source, and I'm talking about the poets here. So these are a few of the poets that bring me joy and awe me with every line or expand my mind with every expression or illusion or connection. And let me just be real with you for a second. It was a chore for me to narrow this down. I love big and I love bold and I love with all the sides of my heart so many poets. So just keep that in mind. This is just a sampler. You know what I mean? And I also should say that all of these are poets who are working right now. They're actively publishing. So this definitely isn't to like beshadow the titans of the form, the 
Audre Lords and the Elizabeth Bishops and the Emily Dickinsons and the Sylvia Plaths and the Mary Olivers and the Wallace Stevenses and the William Carlos Williamses and the Langston Hugheses, the Society of Dead Poets, as it were, who kind of live in my soul because I'm just much more interested in championing and sharing the work of living and working poets with all of you right now because poetry is a real and vibrant and current art form and you and I can help it thrive if we want to through our dollars and our social capital and so on. So I guess basically what I'm saying is let's support living artists. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, let's get into it. If you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you've probably heard me talk about Ada Limon. And in fact, her latest collection, The Hurting Kind, is one of our asynchronous book club picks for this month. But I just love her work for so many reasons. Chief among them is that it's always grounded in nature and cosmic in scale and meaning, all while being largely plain spoken in affect. So she's one of these poets that finds so much hidden in a split second or a tiny moment or a gesture and her ability to connect an observable micro experience with some heartbreaking or joy making or resonant thing is just it just gets me every time and I wouldn't say she's an evisceration poet in the sense that she doesn't you know open her chest to show you her organs as a manifestation of pain or trauma or heartbreak or whatever it is but she definitely does work through the personal and the emotional and I mean her work is just always a jaw dropper for me so always going to recommend Ada Limon. So Natasha Trethaway and particularly her collections Thrall and Monument. Uh, she's another can't miss for me. Her poetry explores racism and identity and heartache and the intersections of all those things. And she's very inspired by visual art, especially painting. So if you're interested in ekphrastic poetry, and what I mean by that is poetry that describes or details works of art, then <laughs> Hi, the hints to Natasha Trethaway, particularly her poem, Repentance, which genuinely makes me want to lie down in a dark room with like an ice pack on my brain every time I read it. Next up, I want to talk about Franny Choi, who just released a new collection, actually, The World Keeps Ending and The World Goes On. Uh, she's on the experimental side of poetry. She really loves to play with form on the page and the way repetition and rhythm look and feel feel and sound. And I first found Franny Choi through the Versus podcast, which she no longer hosts, but she and Denez Smith hosted it for, I think, six seasons. And it's just, yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit more in part two. But I read her first chapbook, Death by Sex Machine, back in 2018, I think. And that book morphed into uh, what was one of my top books of 2022, actually, her collection Soft Science. 
And if you want to hear me absolutely go off about that book, like in a really good way, then check out episode two of the podcast where I talk about my top books of last year. But I just love the way she plays with the lyric and kind of enters that space as a combatant almost, just with this ferocity and sure-footedness, like she's someone who's all out of bubblegum, if you know that reference. And she just brings so much power and punch to her work. And I just can't stop and I won't stop with Franny Choi, honestly. And you know, in a similar can't stop, won't stop space for me is Victoria Chang, who absolutely blew my lid when I first discovered her work. I started with Obit, her collection of poems that are written in the style of obituaries, but not just for people, but for memories of times past or elements of feeling or her own expectations about like life. It's just one of these formally experimental and also formally constrained pieces of work that just greases my wheels. You know, it gets me thinking about how forms and boundaries and restriction in art and creative work can offer such wonderful challenges and invite us to think in new ways about old things or notions or preconceptions. You know what I mean? And her latest collection, The Trees Witness Everything, is a similarly constrained work. And I'm going to do a more thorough review of that one in a few weeks. So look out for that little reviews episode to drop if you want to hear more about why Victoria Chang has such a hold on me. So I can't enumerate my poet's demur without uh, mentioning Maggie Nelson, who is, to borrow her own term, a mother of my heart, even though she she doesn't know that. <laughs> She's a poet and a philosopher who works not just cross-genre, but I would say trans-genre, because her work transcends limitations and definition and kind of manifests itself and really thrives in those in-betweens. And sidebar, I think it's hilarious that I'm so into Victoria Chang and her deep and abiding dedication to limits and also into Maggie Nielsen's perpetual transduction of form, but I guess I guess we all contain multitudes. <laughs> so anyhow, Maggie Nielsen explores love and gender and intersections in ways that I can only call heart handling like she just holds and molds my heart with everything she writes and when she puts it back it's just a little bit different and she's just so smart and I love that about her I legitimately learn something every time I read her work and she like Franny Choi showed up in my 2022 favorites with her book The Argonauts and I dig into that piece in episode two as well beyond that I love her collection Something Bright Then Holes and also Bluettes and Before You Come For Me that's how the book title is pronounced as per Maggie Nelson herself but I'm gonna review Bluettes in a few weeks as well so stay frosty for that. I have the softest spot for Sharon Olds because my partner John and I share a love for her that we cultivated long before we knew one another. And honestly, I think he quoted Sharon Olds to me when we were first dating, just like off the cuff. And so her work carries a bit more for me, just sentimentally. But she's always a poet I return to when I'm seeking some of that remove or gravitas within the lyric form. 
And by that, I mean, I'm looking for almost a formality, not of form itself, but of expression or prosody, you know, like language that is nevertheless embedded in these poems that really mine her memories and her experiences and even her trauma and sadness without becoming maudlin or even pedantic. So one of her most well-known poems, I go back to May 1937, which you can find with a quick little tap of your fingers. It's all over the internet. That was my first experience of her writing, and it's kind of emblematic for me of her approach to poetry. So if you're looking for somewhere to start with Sharon Olds, she's been working for years, for decades. So her body of work is admittedly quite big. Maybe start there and see what you think. And with a similar softness do I hold Jane Hirschfield and two collections of hers that I love are Of Gravity and Angels and The Beauty. She's a poet with pretty ostensible environmental concerns in her work and they come through not just in the content itself like the actual things or objects she's writing about but also in these overarching explorations of the transitory and the permanent and even those moments of transition and liminality and like I don't know, almost multitude. And I don't want to jump to any conclusions here, but it is worth noting that she's also a translator. I feel like that kind of fluency across literal modes of communication, I'm talking about actual language here, has to influence the way a poet sees the possibility or the potential of language or the way words can kind of stretch and form around meaning. And I feel like that has something to offer her interest in these more transitional or ephemeral experiences. So I can't not mention Dennis Smith, Reginald Duane Betts, and Tommy Pico, all poets possessed of such incredible rhythm and attack and intensity. So I'll talk more about Dennis Smith in part two when we talk about podcasts, but I do want to shout out a couple of works by the other two poets I just mentioned. Reginald Duane Betts's Felon. It's a collection about the effects of incarceration, both on himself personally and on populations at large. And it's this hard and propulsive read that's really formally exciting. It's got these really forceful lyric poems, these erasure poems from found documents, and even a crown of sonnets at the end. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's sometimes also called a sonnet corona, and it's essentially a set of linked sonnets that share a theme and borrow lines from one another. So it's an incredible work of poetry, and I highly, highly recommend Felon by Reginald Duane Betts. And with Tommy Pico, all his work really intrigues and moves me. But Nature Poem and Feed stand out for me as good spots to get acquainted with him. His work reminds me of Amir McBride, in a sense, because it's that deluge of consciousness thing. It's fast and feels nonstop. And it's, I don't know, almost athletic in its expression. All his work addresses and troubles culture, clashing, erasing, communing, refusing, colluding. And when it's given to us in this signature wrapper of unpunctuated kind of ever-flowing language, we can't help but feel like 
we're in this circle of trust with the person or the people who are kind of narrating Tommy Pico's poems. You know what I mean? His experience is pouring over us and capsizing us and buoying us all at once. And it's a real experience unto itself. And I'm definitely here for it. Likewise, I can't overlook Kevin Young, whose collection Stones I reviewed in a previous episode and whose work carries so much beautiful linguistic pattern work and also delves into his past and his family experience as a way of illuminating his current moment. I think that's true of a lot of poets, but I find that it's a really rich experience with Kevin Young's work. Plus, he's the current host of the New Yorker Poetry Podcast, which I'll talk about in part two of this little duology, and I just love what he does on that show. Two more must-mentions for me are Megan Fally and Andrea Gibson, who happened to be engaged, and my little parasocial heart is just singing for them. Uh, but these two poets are intrinsically linked in my mind because they both have this sense of unbridledness in their work. It's just this open road bliss. And that isn't to say that all their poems are just sunshine and sandy beaches. They both write about trauma and violence and the struggle toward identity, but they write about it with such hope. Andrea Gibson's Lord of the Butterflies is an absolute barn burner of compassion and queer joy. Plus, they're an incredible spoken word performer. If you can find recordings of their performances online, you should but you'll probably cry, so don't do this unless you're in a good place emotionally. Really, really stunning work, live and in recording. And Megan Fally's Drive Here and Devastate Me, well, it devastated me, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. And as I said in my micro-review on Instagram of that collection back in January 2022, she's the open-hearted, full-throated love poet we all need. And I totally stand by that. I really do. Her work is this dredge and it'll scrape the scale from the sides of your heart. I promise. I just, I just love it. And you know what? I am feeling a little bit roguish here. So I'm going to mention someone who I don't know that they would be considered a poet per se, but I'm all about breaking those boundaries. So I'm going to mention Sabrina Imbler as well, whose chapbook, Dyke Geology, geology is in parentheses there. It's one I come back to again and again and think about a lot because it's not just an experiment of language. It uh, essentially queers scientific writing, among other things, but it's this experiment in genre. So it's kind of auto-fictive in a way, and it's just such a fresh and fascinating take on the structure of a book. Kind of the way writers like Sheila Hetty or Renee Gladman interrogate formal and some might say fashionable elements of storytelling. So if you're interested in poetic prose or maybe prosy poetics, I'm not sure what we want to call it there, maybe both, uh, maybe check out Sabrina Imbler. And finally, poets I'm just getting into are Saeed Jones and Aria Aber. And I should mention that we're reading Saeed's latest collection, Alive at the End of the World, for book club this month as well. And while I don't have much to say about their bodies of work just yet, they both really excite me as writers. Saeed for his vibes, honestly. And in fact, I'll link this amazing interview he did with poet Patricia Smith for the Poetry Foundation in the show notes. And Aria for her depth as a poetically political thinker. And I'll also link her interview for Brooklyn Poets, which 
is a few years old, but still it's so good. And I'll link both of their chats with Kevin Young on the New Yorker Poetry Podcast in the show notes as well. I know there are people I'm forgetting or omitting here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Ocean Vong, of course. I reviewed his latest collection, Time is a Mother, in episode seven. So if you want to hear me gush about him and his work, go check that one out too. But for now, let's spell this cast. I'll be back with part two next week, and we'll talk about other ways to engage with poetry that don't necessarily involve sitting down with a collection or a compendium or an anthology. Stay tuned for that. Follow at Little Oracles for continuing big book energy on Instagram. Check out the blog at littleoracles.com. And as always, take care, keep creating, and stay divine. Talking about poetry, I just can't sleep. Poetry, I'm in too deep. Oh my god, I promise I won't sing on, on every podcast. No, what am I saying? That's who I am. <laughs> <laughs>